to the message, let me just uh, say thank you. Thank you so much um, for you guys who uh, prayed and uh, lifted me and my family up during, I was one of the most craziest uh, seasons um, ever we've ever been in in our lives. Um, uh, I'm in the hospital. She's having two medical. All right. So uh, if you got your Bible, please meet me in Esther chapter two. Uh, two months ago, we began uh, a series in the book of Esther, and the title of the series was God Behind the Scene. God Behind the Scene. And the book of Esther is one of those books where you say, isn't that a book about a girl who won a beauty contest? What does that have to do with my life today? And the answer is more than you know. And so we're going to be in chapter 2. This morning, last last message, the title of the message was Party Pooper, because Vashti was a party pooper. We met Xerxes, who was the king of Persia, and he threw this huge party for his nobles and his officials, where they were coming together in order to figure out how they were going to go against Greece. They wanted to overtake them. His father had tried to overtake them and had failed. And so Xerxes says, well, I'm going to try and, t- and beat them. And so he has all of his uh, army officials and nobles together, and he throws this huge feast in order to show them the vastness of his wealth and all that he had. And um, in the midst of this party, in the, the last seven days, they were all drunk. And he said, I want Vashti to come out and show her beauty. And Vashti said, no, I'm not doing that. So he's embarrassed, and so his, his friends say, hey, just find somebody who's better. Let's find another queen, and then also send out a notice to all the, the world telling them, hey, uh, wives, you need to respect your husbands. Because if they hear about this, they'll say, well, Vashti doesn't have to listen to Xerxes. Why would I have to listen to you, your little peon and her husband that she has in there? So, so they send out this, this notice, and that's where we are in chapter 2 of Esther. And the title of this message is A Foot in Two Worlds. A Foot in Two Worlds. Let's look at chapter 2 and starting at verse 1. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. So let me set the stage here. That between verses uh, or chapter one and chapter two, there is a gap of about four years. And Xerxes goes to fight against Greece. And it's one of those battles, if you know history, it was the Battle of Thermopylae, where if you've seen the movie 300, it's where they depict this 300 uh, Spartan soldiers kind of hold off and keep the Persians from this little narrow passageway from getting to Greece. And so they ended up being annihilated, the 300, and there were a few other people there. But they were able to slow them up enough. There were a couple other battles, but long story short, the Persians lost to the Greeks. And so Xerxes goes back home, and now he's back home at the palace, and he is humiliated, he is embarrassed, and he is sulking. 
And when you have a man who has all that power, he does foolish stuff. And so he starts drinking. He's drunk all the time. He's messing with the wives of his staff, which eventually got him killed, by the way. They assassinated him because he just kept doing it. And so historians talk about Xerxes. He was just at home moping. And it's while he's doing this that he remembers Vashti. He says, you know, I remember Vashti. And you remember what he did. And it, the, the, the way the text is talking is like he regrets what he did. I've never been drunk. But you ever been drunk and, for, and regret what you did? When you look at it, you say, man, I, I, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. And he's probably in his mind thinking, why in the world would I let go such a beautiful woman like Vashti? But when you make a decree as the king of Persia, your decrees cannot be revoked. So whatever you say has to stand. And so he has to keep Vashti. Now, something I want you to remember, we talked about in the book of Esther that there is two uh, doctrines, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, which says that God is in control and governs everything. But then there's the doctrine of providence. And providence says that God gets involved in his creation. We're not deists. Deists believe that God made the world, wound it up, and then stepped back and has no interaction with the world. We believe that God made the world, but that he also interacts in the world. Now, let me give you a more detailed definition of providence. Is God, in some invisible and inscrutable way, inscrutable means hard to understand or impossible to interpret, governs all creatures, actions, and circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. Many people, when they think when God gets involved, it means it has to be miracles. If there's fire from heaven, that's God. If there's seas opening, that's God. But providence says that God often will work through ordinary means, ordinary decisions, which is extremely encouraging to me, as we'll get to toward the end of the sermon. But understand that everything that's happening in this book, remember, Esther never mentions God. The only way you know there's any kind of religious significance is because it mentions the Jewish people. So here is Xerxes after losing. He's at home and he remembers Vashti and he's regretting that he even did what he did. Now, verse two, then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now, here's where veggie tales and children's stories have messed up the way we look at the Bible. The Bible is not G-rated. 
You ever read it? <laughs> and it's amazing. You know the stories we teach the children? We teach them about Noah, right? And his, his ark. He builds an ark. And all the animals, they come. He is like a, you know, a zoo. Come on. Come on and enter the ark. And this is wonderful story. Tell the children. But what we don't tell them is millions of people drowned. Noah is on the boat and he's looking at people and, and drowning. I mean, David and Goliath, right? David takes his sling and puts a stone in there and hits David or Goliath in the head and he falls down. He went and cut off his head. I've never seen that on a flannel board when I was a kid. Goliath's head just, just up like this. I mean, don't we don't even get to the book of Judges. Don't open the book of Judges. I mean, when you, re- when you read the Bible, Noah, he gets off the ark. What does he do? Gets drunk, passed out naked in his tent. That's right there in your Bible. So when we read scripture, we think, oh, well, that is such a like a magical place. No, when you when you read the Bible, you read it's a it's a it's an evil world. That sin is entered into. So when we read this, we think, oh, it's a beauty contest. The the girls are going to come and and show off their beauty. You know, it's Miss Persia. (laughs) It's not that. There is more in common with what was happening here with kidnapping, human trafficking, and systematic rape. Girls are being forced from their home to be placed into a harem. You know what a harem is? A harem is a vending machine for the king's sexual pleasure. Hmm, tonight, let me get C8. <laughs> Last night I had C8, today I didn't get H2. And that's all they're good for. Remember, we said women were looked at as property, as the only thing you're good for is for my pleasure. And these women, they would be taken from their home by force, put into this harem, and they would never be able to have a family. They would, they would live never being able to marry anyone else. The rule was, if you ever were with the king, you could not be with anybody else for the rest of your life. So you're living in a harem. If you had children, your children would be raised to serve the king, but they could never become heirs. So they would just serve the king. That is not a good existence. And this is the world they live in. This is all women are good for. So this is not women saying, the prince is having a ball. It's not that. The, the women aren't waiting for the prince to come with his golden or glass slipper so they can put it on her foot and they're being taken from their home. Now, maybe some said, well, maybe I'll make it. Maybe I'm pretty. Maybe I, maybe the king will pick me. Most knew as soon as they got there. Oh, there's no way. She's way prettier than me. And they knew my life is going to be only to serve the king in one way. I hope you, I hope you sense and feel that this is not some beautiful thing. This is not some beauty pageant. It's a beauty pageant of sorts, but in all the wrong ways. And so, verse 5. Also, just notice this. In verse 4, it said that this advice appealed to the king and he followed it. You notice how suggestible the king is? 
Somebody makes a, a suggestion, and he goes, oh, that sounds a good idea, let's do that. You'll notice throughout the book that he seems to be very easily manipulated to do what they want him to do. And that will become important later. Verse 5. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captain with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So now we meet one of the main characters in this book, Mordecai. Now, Mordecai is the first time we hear the term Jew, that he is a Jew. Now, here's a question. What is a Jew doing in Persia? Now, you got to go back and remember, when God spoke to his people, he told them, if you obey me, there are blessings. If you disobey me, there are curses. And the curses were extremely specific. It wasn't like he said, oh, you'll be cursed in some general ambiguous way. In Deuteronomy 28, he is very specific. Crops, all kinds of diseases. And one of them was, if you continue to follow other gods, continue to cheat on me, which is what idolatry is, he said, I will cause an enemy to come to overtake you and carry you off to where you don't want to go. And so what did the Jews do? Of course, they still committed idolatry. And what happened? Nebuchadnezzar came in, destroyed Jerusalem, and carried the Jews off to Babylon. Now, long story short, the Babylonians were then overtaken by the Persians. So the Persians are now in charge, and the king, his name was Cyrus, he said, hey, you guys can go back home. You don't have to stay here. You can go back to Judah where you can rebuild your temple and rebuild your city and rebuild your walls. This is where you see the book of Ezra and Nehemiah chronicles all that happened there. But Cyrus said, hey, you can go, you can do whatever you want, but you can go back to Judah. So some of the Jews in different waves went back to Judah. But some Jews stayed. Some Jews said, I'm not walking all the way back over there. I like the Starbucks that's here. My kid has a good school here. I like the gym that I go to. Everybody knows me. I'm going to stay here in Persia. So this is why they're here. Now, if you notice, it says that he was the son of Jer, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish. Those names should look familiar to you. If you remember, these are some of the relatives of King Saul. And so when we went through First and Second Samuel, you actually some of these names came up. Shammai, he was the one who was cursing David because he felt like he was messing up with uh, the king. So th- these names are going to be very, very important as we get to chapter 3 next time. But I want you to notice that this is a Jew. He's still in Persia. But notice where he is. Where is he? He's in the citadel. What is a Jew doing in the citadel? You know what a citadel was the center of the government. It's like the palace, is the castle. It was the place where they did all of the governmental work, where the king would be. He, the, Mordecai probably was involved somehow in the court, in politics in some way. What, what is a Jew doing in that position? And no one knows he's a Jew. Now, this is going to become important because we've always put up Mordecai and Esther as these especially beautiful and wonderful examples. But as we're going to see is that they had some behavior that we might think is a little off. 
But we'll get to that. Verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadessa, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl was also known as Esther. This, uh, sorry, this girl who was also known as Esther was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So we met Mordecai, and now we meet Hadessa. Hadessa was her Jewish name, and Hadessa means myrtle, which is a beautiful, fragrant tree. And they would use it often as during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would wave the branches. And her name Esther is, it means star. And it was taken from the goddess of love there in Babylon. Now, Mordecai, he had a name. When you look at some of the ancient uh, texts, he was, the name means um, servant of the god of uh, Marduk which is the state god of Babylon. So they have these these two names. And Esther, she seems to have her foot in two worlds. She has her Jewish life and then her secular Persian life. And what we read about Esther or Hadessah is that her mother and father had died and her cousin, Mordecai, takes care of her. Now, the thing that is so interesting about the way the author describes her, and he says, this girl Esther was lovely in form and in features. Which is a way of saying Esther was fine. (laughs) But he goes beyond fine. It's saying lovely in form and features. Why say that? Because many People read this that I've read and said, see, the Bible is making a big deal about looks. And girls already have a complex about looks, the way the culture talks about looks. And that's all you're going to do is bring up looks. And the important thing to recognize is that the reason the Bible brings up looks is because that's how God is going to save his people. You don't notice that. See, God can use you if you're beautiful. He can use you if you're not so beautiful. He can use you if you're smart. He can use you if you're not so smart. He can use you if you're tall. He can use you if you're not so tall. There is nothing that keeps God from using you. And oftentimes it's our weaknesses that show that he can work through through his strength in us. So she was beautiful. You say, well, isn't that a little, isn't that a little off? Doesn't the Bible not tell us to care about looks? Well, yes, it does. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Listen to what Peter says. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, <clears throat> the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Esther was beautiful outside, 
But the Bible seems to say that the kind of beauty that you need to be working on more is inner beauty. Because everybody knows, I don't care how beautiful you are, if you're ugly inside, eventually that begins to seep out. And some of the most beautiful women, because their insides are like dead men's bones, eventually the guy begins to say, you know, you are very, very beautiful, but there's some kind of stench that I'm smelling. And it's because what's inside of you is seeping out. Now, what scripture says is that you need to be working on the inside. It doesn't say don't work on the outside. It doesn't say, well, just let the outside do what it do. No, you, the Bible is not saying that what you do on the outside doesn't matter. It's just saying don't let that be the focus. In the morning, you have to repair what happened during the night. That's what we all do in the morning. We wake up and we repair. We don't just come to church the way we woke up. At least you're not supposed to. So the, the Bible is not against beauty. But it's against making that the only thing. And this is, this is a problem in our culture. Girls who will go onto Instagram or Snapchat and put on 45 filters. So you look like a cartoon character and you're no longer you. And then they post that up as if that's them. You look at magazines and they edit them. Nothing you see on a magazine is real. And yet that's what girls are feeling. I have to look like that. They don't look like that. And even in the text that Peter here, he's, he's, he's talking about Sarah. There are four women who are considered to be the most beautiful women. Abigail, Esther, Rahab, and Sarah. But do you notice Peter here talks about Sarah, but not about her beauty, but about the way she submitted to her husband. That she was beautiful in that way. So here, this is not the Bible saying, because what people will do is they'll take this verse or they'll take this, this whole story and they'll say, see, this is what God wants from me. He wants me to be beautiful. If I'm not beautiful, then he cannot use me. And that's not what scripture teaches at all. So verse eight, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her from <clears throat> and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. So Esther, she's moving up. Still a harem, but she's moving up. And she's given seven maids to help her. And she is so beautiful that she affects even a eunuch who says, Whoo! <laughs> you're a eunuch. So he puts her up in the higher levels and gives her special food. Now, just, just a note here. Remember, they're pagans. And the Jews had certain laws about what they could and could not eat. Now, we don't know because it doesn't tell us, but it's possible that this special food was food that she should not have been eating. So we have this situation, and we're going to get to this, where Mordecai and Esther, it seems like they are concealing 
the Jewishness. And should they be doing that? But we'll talk about that. Verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background. Why? Because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So, we find out why she's not telling her. Her stepdad told her not to. We're not sure why. Verse 12. Before a girl's turn came to go in to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. Let that sink in. Prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfume and cosmetics. That's a long time to be at the spa. Can you imagine? I I can't imagine my wife saying, babe, I'm going to the spa. I'll be back. When? When? What's today? November 25th. I'll be back November 24th, 2019. What? Who paying for this? 12 months? And listen, 12 months for one night. Where you have a, what, 99% chance of not being chosen. This is an extensive extensive process. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to to the care of Shahasgaz. These are great names. The king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. He would not return to the king unless... Sorry, she would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. So they would go into the the king and they would say, do you need anything? We don't know what those things are, jewelry, some kind of other thing to wear. And you go and take it into the king. You would spend the night with him and then you would go to another part of the harem where the concubines were and you never saw the king again unless he called you by name. So this was the process. Verse 15 When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. So Haggai had told her, hey, these are some things that you, this is all you need. So she didn't take anything extra. She just said, this is what he said I should use or have on or whatever, and this is how I'm going to go into the king. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more, attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti, and the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal 
liberality. Esther won the beauty contest. Esther is now the queen. But we have some things to talk about. Now, the Bible says that you and I are exiles or strangers in this world. So as you and I are walking through this world, one songwriter said, I'm a stranger down here. This old world is not my home. I'm a stranger down here. This old world is not my home. Forgot the rest. It says other stuff. (laughs) But the idea is that this world is not our home. It's like a hotel. And we're on our way to heaven. And as we're on our way to heaven, there's a narrow road. And there are two ditches that we can fall into. We can fall into the ditch of assimilation or into the ditch of isolation. There are two ways that we can live in such a way that is not pleasing to God. We can fall into the ditch of assimilation or the ditch of isolation. Now, here's the question. And this is what people have an issue with when they look at Mordecai. They say, Mordecai, why would you allow your daughter to be taken into the harem of a pagan king who thinks he's God to have her treated in that way. You did not protect her. Some commentator, Jewish commentators think he is not someone we should look up to because he allowed that to happen to his daughter. People look at Esther and they say, Esther, how is it that you could allow yourself to be in that position, to be in that kind of contest, to perhaps eat some of the food, and then sleep with a Gentile king. The Old Testament was extremely clear. You're not supposed to eat the food that you're not supposed to eat, and it was very clear that someone who was a Jew was not supposed to be married or sleep with someone who was also not a Jew. Not because it's about race, but it's about faith. Faith is the issue, not race. So Esther seems to be a character who seems to be having her foot in two worlds. How are we to think about this? How are we to think about how these two characters are living in Persia? What is assimilation? Assimilation is when you, as a minority group or a minority individual, take on the characteristics of the popular culture around you. Some people, they'll call it cultural assimilation. So you put a group like the Jews in the middle of Persia or in the middle of uh, another country, and they begin to take on all of the characteristics of that nation that's around them. And God was very clear to the Jews, I don't want you to look like them. I don't want you to act like them. I don't want you to talk like them. I don't want you to dress like them. I don't want you to worship like them. And what happens when you are put into that kind of situation is that you can begin to take on the characteristics and the values and the morals of the culture that you're around. And this is what seemingly happens, perhaps, to Mordecai 
into Esther because he tells her, don't tell her, don't tell him you're a Jew, and he hasn't told anybody he's a Jew. Why? You say, well, if he did that, perhaps they might have been killed. Now, there's no evidence that necessarily there was any danger at this point. But if, he, if she had said, no, I'm not going to sleep with the king. No, no, no. She might have been killed. Well, remember, Daniel and his friends were taken into exile, put into the palace. And what did the king say? I want you to eat the food that's on the table. What did they say? No, we're not going to do that. Hey, I want you to bow down. And I want you to worship this idol. What did they say? No. I'll throw you in the fire. That's cool. Because God will be with us. And even if he doesn't save us, we're still not going to do it. Daniel, you cannot pray to anybody but the king for the next 30 days. What did Daniel do? Open the door, open the window and say, Father, in the name of Jesus. He didn't say in the name of Jesus, but he just, he didn't care. So what might have happened? I might have been killed. I might have been thrown into the lion's den. But my commitment to God is more important than my life. So here's, here again is where people say, Mordecai, Esther, you guys are, you guys are acting a little, a, little, a little shady. But is there a difference between them and us? Because can people tell the difference between those of us who claim to be Christians and those who aren't. Can anybody tell the difference? This is what I'm concerned for, is that we as Christians are called to be separate. We're called to look different. And I wonder if when people look at us, they say, I can't tell the difference between you and the person who claims to not have faith. We talk the same way. We look at the same entertainment. We use our time the same way. So I'm wondering, is there, is there for us, how, how have we assimilated into our culture? Because or you might think, well, no, I mean, I'm separate from the culture. I don't do that stuff. I'm, I'm separate. I don't kill people. I don't lie. I don't cheat on my taxes. But I think in many ways... We have been assimilated into our culture in ways that we don't even realize. We have assimilated in ways and we are doing things that are literally shaping our souls. And we don't think they're shaping our souls because of the the nature of what they are. For example, look how we view entertainment, social media. Did you know the average person looks at their phone 85 times a day? In fact, there's an app now on your phone or a system that will let you know how much time you spent looking at your phone. And it will actually show you how much time you spend on a particular app. And you can even now, you can say, I want to only spend uh, an hour. And then once that hour is up, it will shut off that app and you can't open the app anymore. There's ways around it. But the idea is it just tells you. This is, this is the Apple company doing that. Why? Because they're starting to see the adverse effects of how much we're on our phones. Last week, mom took a video of us at the house. Me and a bunch of people. And everybody was on their phone. Except for my dad. He was just yelling at the TV for the Cowboys. (laughs) (laughs) 
But all of us are all in our phones. And my mom, she said something like interaction, something about interact. What would you say? New age conversation. <laughs> and this is, this is the cultural era that we breathe. Listen to this. Each day, 500 million tweets are sent. Four million hours of content are uploaded to YouTube. 4.3 billion Facebook messages are posted. Billion. Six billion Google searches are conducted. And 205 billion emails are sent. And... For many people, you can't tell the difference between how a Christian uses social media and entertainment and a non-Christian. And it has, we have assimilated into that culture. We, that is just our life. And they even give us the, the stats for Instagram or Snapchat and all these other things. Now, some of you say, I'm, I'm on none of that stuff. God bless you. <laughs> but most, many of us, we know the addictive nature of it, and we know how you wake up in the morning and one of the first things you pick up is your phone to see what happened. Who posted something about a funny cat? <laughs> and this is, this is shaping our souls. We spend so much time doing that stuff, and yet when the pastor asks, who knows the verses for evangelism and discipleship, we still don't know. You've had that list for three years. There's a list that has all of them on there. There are two CDs with all the songs. Now, you don't know it because it's not because you're dumb. It's not because you're stupid. It's not because you're impaired. We're all smart. (laughs) We're all we're all intelligent. <laughs> we, all of us in here. You know why? You spend more time on Facebook than you do in your Bible. If you were to take the amount of time you spend on Facebook and social media and Netflix and just put that into your Bible, you would have the Bible memorized. So we have just sort of assimilated into the culture, and it's shaped our souls. Now, we don't even have an appetite for God's word. And here's the thing. it's not. Here's what's difficult is because these things are gifts from God. Netflix is a gift. Facebook is a gift. YouTube is a gift. Fortnite is a gift. Madden is a gift. Some of you are like, Fortnite? What is this? Video game. These are all gifts, but often the thing that kills our hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. Let me show you this, this quote. Listen to this. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, 
When God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. You find this in Luke 14. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. What makes it so hard is that these things are wonderful gifts from God, but good things become bad things because they become God things. And so this is the issue. It's not so much that when you are watching TV and looking at Netflix and doing these things that they're bad, but these things begin to dull your appetite for God. So it's not just assimilation, but also the ditch of isolation. Sometimes we go the opposite extreme and say, well, I'm not going to assimilate into the culture. Instead, I'll just isolate myself from the culture. This is what the Amish have done. They're stuck in the 19th century. And they still, some of them have, still have horse and buggy. And they have no electricity, no phones, because the culture is bad. The culture is evil. We want to separate ourselves. But that's not what God has called us to either. God has called us to be in the world, but not of it. God has called us to affect the world. What does Jesus say? We are salt of the earth, and we're the light of the world. What good does salt do in the salt shaker? You know what salt does? Not only does it flavor, but it slows up the decaying process. You know the world would be worse if we weren't here, Christians? As bad as the world is, if we weren't here, it would be worse. Because God has left us here. God has left us here to be salt. God has left us here to be a light. And too many Christians like shining their light in the church. Why are you shining your light in the church? Everybody just, we are letting our light shine. In the church. Letting our light shine. It's not dark in here. It's dark out there. So we're not supposed to assimilate into the culture, but we're also not supposed to isolate ourselves from the culture. This is why I love the fact that some businesses have said, we're not just going to go off to a, you know, buy a patch of land and only have food for only Christian people. That's why I love places like Chick-fil-A and In-N-Out that you can tell have a Christian foundation. You ever gone to Chick-fil-A and they're playing worship music? You can worry me go, oh, here I am to worship, which is what eating is. It's worship. And you can tell a difference, though, between those places and other places. You ever go to In-N-Out and say, hello, and say, hi, how are you? Great to see you. How can I help you today? You go to, to McDonald's, what? <laughs> it's, it's like night and day. There's a difference. But they haven't said, we're only going to serve Christians. That's why when we, we talk about wanting to have a Christian coffee shop, not because we only want Christians to be there. We want the lost to come and to find out about Jesus. If we had a coffee shop and there's only Christians, we should shut it down. Because we're not called to isolate ourselves. We're called to go into the world. So then <clears throat> here's the balance. The balance is not. Well, we got to go one way or the other. We got to be, be somewhere in the middle. And here's where God gives us a, a 
an answer. This is in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. This is why the Jews are in Babylon. Remember, they've been carried into exile, and so they're there. They're in a midst of a pagan culture, and God says, this is how I want you to act while you're there. This is Jeremiah chapter 29 and verses 4 through 7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, point here, you remember what Jeremiah 29 11 says, right? You know the plans I have to you for you, plans to give you hope in the future, all that. It's talking about him one day restoring them back to, to Judah. But he says, while you're there, listen, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So here's what we do. We live in the world, and we work for the good of our society. When's the last time you prayed for Petaluma? When's the last time you prayed for the mayor? We have an official now in politics in Petaluma. We got to pray for her. God will give her wisdom and strength and courage to do things in our school system. But here's the thing. If Petaluma prospers, you prosper. Pray for the wealth. Pray for businesses to grow. Pray for the schools to be blessed. Pray for the roads to get fixed. Because there's so many potholes in Petaluma. But as the city prospers, you prosper. But there's also a difference. There's also a distinction. So we need to live in that tension of not only are we here to preach the gospel and to make a difference in the world, we also don't want to take on the values and the cultures of the world. This is harder than you think. I think we might look at, you know, and I did it this week. I said, Esther, what is wrong with you? Why would you, why would you do that? And the Lord reminded me. Have you ever said anything you weren't supposed to say? Have you ever gone somewhere you weren't supposed to be? How many times have you had a very questionable physical interaction with someone you're not married to? You see, we we love to talk about the mistakes of other people, forgetting that we made mistakes as well. And here's the thing, regardless of whether they always knew what the right choice was or whether they had the best motives, because the author in the book of Esther often does not give us information about what the characters are thinking or why they're doing what they're doing. So we often have to look and say, hmm, that seems mm, a little weird. I don't know why you're doing that. But the author is doing that for a purpose, because this is the point he's trying to make. God was working through even their imperfect decisions and actions to fulfill his perfect purposes. Here's what I love. God takes our stupid decisions and mistakes, and he uses them to fulfill his will. You know how many times I've said, oh, man, that's going to mess up everything. And God uses that in order to bring glory to himself. 
And so this is why this book is encouraging to me. It's encouraging to me because God is always working no matter what it looks like. You don't, you don't see God saying, Esther, go. You don't see anyone talking to Mordecai. It seems like they're just making decisions. But behind the scenes, God is working. And I often in the past dealt with discouragement. And the discouragement was often around, you know, whatever area of life that you're in, ministry, work, you find times where you're discouraged. Um, And I ran into something that has changed the way I think about discouragement. And this is what the, the principle is, that often discouragement is a loss of perspective. That sometimes you're discouraged because you don't have the right perspective. A pastor who looks at his church and says, feels like nothing's working, people aren't coming, preaching, and nothing's happening, and they get discouraged. But you have to have the right perspective. What is God doing? What has God done? Sometimes we're looking at the empty chair. We need to be looking at the ones that are filled. Now, hear me. We need to fill these chairs <laughs> for the survival <laughs> of this church. But for, I'm glad that you guys are here. And I had to start changing my mind. When we had prayer meeting, you know, because prayer is the least attended meeting in the church, universal. I had to start saying, you know what? God was able to change the world with a small prayer meeting. Now, we will continue to say, those of you who know the Lord should be there. Amen. And we'll never stop saying that. But listen, I will never let that discourage me any longer. Amen. And you shouldn't let anything that you, that you see happening in your life discourage you because God is always working. And know you have a promise from God. This book is about God's faithfulness to keep his covenant promise to the Jews, which he said, from the Jewish people, I'm going to bring a Messiah. If the Jewish people die, he can't fulfill his promise. But he does it not with miraculous things, but with just the actions of a pagan king and two characters who are flawed, and yet you see God working in their life. So listen to this. Don't let your heart be ruled by what you see. Let it be ruled by what Jesus promises you. Such good news to know that we can trust God's promises. And even if we don't see him, even if we don't sense him, Even in this moment, we're saying, God, I don't know what you're doing. Know that God is always working no matter what it looks like. Let's pray.